Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Ah, hello. Uh, you're listening to Living Free on 3CR Community Radio, 855 kHz on your AM dial. Uh, thanks to the Ruminations crew for another great show highlighting issues around homelessness. My name's Bill, and today my guests are Amanda and Sharon, and they're members of Alcoholics Anonymous, and they're going to be sharing their story of recovery from alcoholism and talk about how AA has helped them. So welcome to Amanda and Sharon. Hi. 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 Thank you. Um, so we usually start talking about you know coming into AA and what it's like, Um and, and I guess explain to people how difficult it is to come to the point of getting into a fellowship like AA and how difficult it is sometimes to stay there. <laughs> um, and also talk about, I guess, once you're there, the feeling and your, I guess your, your view of life starts to change once you understand a bit about being an alcoholic, you know, understanding the disease and understanding how how common the experience of alcoholism is in the community and meeting all these other alcoholics who've um, who've been out there anonymously with you and you now know that there's plenty of people out there with a problem who are doing something about it. Um, so Amanda, do you want to sort of talk about coming into AA and what that feeling is when you first come to your first meeting? Yeah, sure. Um, so... My first experience with AA was uh, through a rehab and um, I was in my 30s and to be perfectly honest, um, I I was desperate to stop living the way that I was living. Um, But unfortunately, my my disease is uh, very strong and powerful and my first experience of AA, uh, I didn't learn a lot, to be perfectly honest. My f- old feelings and behaviours of my childhood where I felt like I didn't fit in, I felt like everyone hated me, um, all of that was still with me. And unfortunately, um, I did not hang around the rooms and obviously relapse happened. Speaking about my life at this minute, uh, I... I've absolutely thrown myself into AA and I'm a completely different person now. Um, my experience is completely different. Um, I, I love walking into the room because I see people that I see almost on a daily basis and um, you just you see love in people's eyes and everyone in that room wants everyone to get better and um, the support... They say in the rooms that they love you back to life, and that's exactly what they're doing for me at the moment. So, yeah. Okay. So how long have you been in AA in your last incarnation? So I've, I've been in recovery for about nine years now. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, my story, relapse, is a part of it. Um, I'm hoping this, this is the end of that uh, phase, um, but it's just a day-to-day program. Yeah. So just for today... Um, yeah, I'm doing it the AA way and... Um, living the dream. <laughs> yeah, living the dream. <laughs> I don't know if it's a dream, but um, <laughs> it might be one day if I, if I continue doing the program properly. Yeah. Uh, so what about you, Sharon? 
My first um, interaction with AA was, I mean, I'd heard about AA. I didn't really know a lot about it. My mum's cousin was in AA and he would talk about it, but I never got it. I didn't understand it and I wasn't aware that I was an alcoholic until recent times. I, w- I went to, uh, two years before I actually got in, to before I came back and I listened to all the differences when I went. I didn't... Um, I didn't relate to anyone. I thought, no, I'm not like them. I didn't drive my car drunk. My children around drunk. I didn't do this. I didn't do that. I didn't steal out of their money boxes. <laughs> By two years later, I drove myself around drunk. I'd pinched money out of my ex-husband's money box. It's like I'd, I'd done, and, and now I understand what I hadn't done, what the yets mean, because I hadn't yet. done it yet. yet. Yeah. And um, when I did get into AA um, early last year, I... I still didn't listen properly. I didn't take it as I thought. I stopped easily for eight weeks, and I thought I thought I was different, and I wasn't still wasn't listening to people properly, and I um, and I relapsed after the eight week period because I wasn't listening. I wasn't doing what what you know. I wasn't going to meetings every day, or wasn't going often. I mean, it didn't even have to be even four times a week. I, I had a a one-week break from I went to a Tuesday meeting and on the Monday night decided to go buy a bottle of wine and, you know, I only needed to drink a bottle of wine. And for three weeks I could not put it down again and I learnt in the rooms in AA that um, once you pick up that first drink, it it creates the phenomenon of craving, which is – I've only learnt all this stuff since I've got to AA, but I learnt that really when I went back the second time and I also listened and I listened differently to the people, I started listening for the similarities um, and not for the reasons why, oh, maybe I could go back and try again. And I also, I was doing nine meetings a week and I was just th- really threw myself into it as well and that's the only way um, I've been able to stay sober nearly 10 months now. But also I've found the rooms the same as Amanda. I've found that um, the people in my home group, uh, we call, you know, one meeting a week our home group and we always go to that meeting and the people in that have loved me back to, to so, health. You yeah. know, they've loved me back um, and helped me to sobriety. They've just – and they didn't judge, you know, even though I'd, I'd relapsed. There's absolutely no judgment because everybody wants each other to get – to stay yeah. sober. Yeah. And whether we like each other or not doesn't matter. We've all got this common purpose because personalities are personalities. But yeah. – we all have this common it's i've never been in a fellowship like it i've never been in a group like this before mm-hmm. it's 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 quite an amazing network yeah and i guess the other thing in in a fellowship is that people don't do it for you they give you an example but it's yes. up to you yep and what's that like for you having having seen their example of what can be achieved does that empower you yes it does but what I find is like in in my business life, it's like you hang around with the people, you associate with those you, you most want to become like yeah. and you become like those you associate with. So I would drink with the people that, you know, I became, you know. But in AA, I also find that hanging around with the long-term sober members and they might be younger than me they might have 10 years sobriety and but be younger than me but they're still older than me in their sobriety that I learn from them and I get their wisdom so I make sure that I um, listen to the people that I want the type of sobriety that they've got 
And I know that I can't help people when I haven't got anything to give. I need to be making sure I don't do things and try and try to do things and be helping other people when it's me that needs the help. Yeah. 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 So Amanda, did, did you go into rehab in your attempt to get into AA or attempt to get out of, off the alcohol? Yeah. Look, to be honest, I mean, I probably had heard of AA through movies or things like that. Um, I totally did not understand what an alcoholic was. Um, I thought my problem was my willpower. Um, I thought I was just pathetic and the way I was living my life was just wrong and it was all my fault. I had no idea about the disease concept. Um, So I I went into rehab because I was basically a 24-7 drunk. Um, You know, if I was conscious, I was drinking and obviously you can't live your life like that. Um, So my first rehab, I was introduced to AA, but again, Unfortunately, I didn't. I didn't listen, and um, you know, I got I got uh, attached to someone in rehab. They call it a rehab romance. Um, it's quite common. Um, <laughs> I'm not special in that. And um, all I heard was, "You can never drink again." And my disease said to me, "Yeah, okay, that's fine. We'll have one when we get out of rehab as a goodbye." Um, and clearly that's, that's just my disease. And unfortunately my, my story is that I didn't listen for many, many years in AA. Um, you know, I went to AA, I got 10 days shy of three years, um, and decided that I was better and I had stopped going to AA that created another relapse. Um, it's only been in the last three months that I've actually, they say AA can stand for altered attitudes and I'm, that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm altering my attitude towards AA and now I'm actually listening properly and, you know, I, I tried to look for an easier, softer way. I, I, I've tried counselling, psychologists, kinesiologists, like you name it, I have tried. I even got a tattoo on my wrist um, to stop me from drinking and I can tell you now nothing works um, except for AA. You know, that's what the older sober members tell us. And I've yet to meet an alcoholic out there who um, has great sobriety who isn't in the rooms. Mm. Well, I guess one of the things that I know is that drinking is just a symptom of a deeper problem. And the deeper problem is the way we think. Mm-hmm. And that's and so in other fellowships where, you know, it's not drinking, it might be eating or it might be gambling or whatever – it's the same steps to recover, which is about the way we think. Yeah, yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. So I mean, they, is just a pro, just a symptom. The, yeah, they say they say that um, you know alcoholism alcohol is ten percent of the problem. Ninety percent is what goes on between my head, <laughs> yeah. and um, and yeah, it's not pretty. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so Sharon, coming into AA, how's that changed your your attitude to your life? It's changed my attitude to life uh, quite significantly and um, it's a very good question because I hadn't really thought of it. But it's changed a lot because I now understand the disease of alcoholism. I didn't understand it at all before. I didn't know that um, it was a disease that only ever gets worse. It never gets better. It's a progressive disease. And in my last five years, I noticed how progressively 
worse I was getting. And I thought, too, that my willpower wasn't working um, in my three-week relapse. I'm saying, why isn't my willpower working? Why can't I stop? And um, it's got nothing to do with willpower. And also, I have a completely different attitude now because because of that understanding I'm able to talk to my children about it explain to them what's going on for me it's been really good for them to learn more about alcoholism and that it's an illness I can't help it it's it's something that's in me um the fellowship has been amazing that's helped change me um I've learned to listen more I'm better at listening and not talking so much it's it's significantly changed a lot in my life Okay. Um, so, Amanda, if you're drinking 24 by 7, mm-hmm. you must have had somebody looking after you. You must have had some support mechanism. So what, how, how did that work? Um, oh, look, I, I, I think my higher power was certainly <laughs> looking after me. Uh, I, but to be perfectly honest, I didn't really have a support system. You know, I had my mum and my sister, but they had no idea that I was drinking 24-7. No idea whatsoever. Um, If they had have known that, I'm sure they would have intervened years ago. Um, But I kept it a secret. No one knew. And I I was single at the time and lived on my own. So no one saw. Um, They may have got the embarrassing text messages and phone calls. But, yeah, no one knew that I was drinking 24-7. So there was no support mechanism. And I absolutely have to just say my higher power saved me because I put myself into some really – bad situations yeah. drinking like that because yeah. it was to black out. Yeah. So could you work and drink? In the end, no. No. Um, yeah. You know, I've been a daily drinker since I was 18 uh, and I guess you can call it a functioning alcoholic um, up until when I first went into rehab nine years ago when I quite literally could not work because, like, I'd be, I'd be going to work, you know, with a hangover, just wanting, feeling dreadfully sick and I have no idea how I did it for so many years I really don't um but towards the end when it became waking up and the first thing I do is drink uh there's no I can't go to work and Mm -hmm. to be honest I have I've drank at work before and um I have been fired from that job okay Mm. so do your fellow workers know that you're drinking you always think that you're hiding it and you always think no one knows and you know you've got I've you've got a permanent packet of extra in your handbag and um but of course they know you know we we think things like vodka doesn't smell uh yes it does <laughs> um but it's it's not it's my behavior um yeah. you know and w- once i start drinking i cannot stop i can't put it down for an hour and sober up a little bit or it, it is just a continuous. So then by the end of it, of, of course people know I'm drinking because I'm acting like a drunk. Yeah. And at work in particular, it's quite obvious when you're drunk. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So how about you, um, Sharon? What What's your experience of drinking and working? I didn't really drink and work, but... <laughs> Um, at the, toward the end of my um, working in the in a dress shop, I was um, I was managing managing a shop for a while, and by the and I was working six days a week. It was for a private company. It wasn't a big big. Um, it was just a private couple, so it wasn't a big uh, organisation. 
So by the end of the day, I was hanging out for a glass of wine. And so I'd slam the doors down. I'd run down to Coles, buy my bottle of wine, come back, pour myself a glass of wine, and then I'd start doing the till. Right. And I'd count all the money out and do the till. So that's the point I got to that I couldn't wait till I got home to have a drink. I was hanging out for one while I was working, but I didn't drink before I pulled the doors down. Then when the shop closed and I started um, doing different work that was um, my own time management I had to do, you know, that was the downfall for me because then I could just do what I wanted. And, um, yeah, my drinking got more out of control as I didn't have that commitment to be at work. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, So what... um what triggered you to start looking for help? Well, in the um, in the January, I hadn't because I was doing like casual work, and I hadn't got out there and done that casual work to earn money. In the January, I hadn't earned my rent money, and I also hadn't been a twenty four seven drinker. But in that January, I had a three day bender where I was a twenty where I drank around the clock and I remember waking up at six o'clock and I didn't know whether it was morning or night and that really scared me so and now I know what a bender is I um (laughs) don't worry (laughs) don't worry what the question is (laughs) I can't remember half of my brain I've killed so many brain cells (laughs) yay for being an alcoholic (laughs) So it's really about working working and drinking is, yeah. is really the thing. So Yeah, so oh, what got me to AA, what yeah, made me yeah, realise I yeah. needed to, that's yeah. right, was, uh, and that, that actually really scared me that I'd done that bender and the fact that I didn't earn any money for that month and a friend saw me and they're like, they could see how out of control I was. They organised for me to meet with someone from AA and, uh, and as soon as you said it, I'm like, yes, yes, that's what I need that's to do. That's what I need to do. Yeah, yeah. right. Uh, you're listening to The Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. Uh, we've got podcasts of The Living Free Show uh, available on our website, which is 3cr.org.au forward slash living free. Uh, if you want to contact us, you can call the station on 9419 8377 or email us at 3crlivingfree at uh, We've also got a, an account on Twitter too. Last week I mentioned that we have our 3CR subscriber drive. Uh, so if you enjoy the show and like to help keep us our voices of recovery on the airwaves, uh, you can support 3CR by becoming a subscriber. You can call the station on 03 9419 8377 or go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Um, I'll just play a quick subscriber announcement as well. Subscribe to your award-winning independent community radio, bringing you coverage of community issues and events. This is Peter Base Camp. Welcome to the Little Red Telangi Treehouse. As you said, I'm going to the East West Channel picket, as it usually does start at 5.30am. The Lincoln Melbourne Authority have come here in the middle of the night and set up another drill rig here on Gold Street. The police were pretty keen to defend that with all their resources this morning. And I think for Australians, in order to know ourselves, really fully know ourselves, in order to mature, we need to understand Aboriginal culture. We need to embrace it and realise that in coming here, you're now part of the longest continuing culture in the world. We need your support. Subscribe today. Call 9419 8377 now. 
I'm talking with Amanda and Sharon, and we're talking about alcoholism and Alcoholics Anonymous and how that helps. Um, so one of the things, Sharon, um, I want to talk to you about was um, drinking creates a lot of bottles yes. and containers. <laughs> so what's it like when you're drinking a lot and you don't want people to know that you're drinking? How do you, how do you get rid of that stuff? Very good question. I... Um I share the rubbish bin with my landlords and I used to get really embarrassed. So I would have so many bottles and if I missed a recycle week, that was even worse. I'd have so many bottles that I would take all of their recycling out and lay all of my bottles flat on the bottom and then put theirs on top. And if I had too many, I'd stick them in the car in a plastic bag. And if I go past McDonald's to get a cup of coffee, I threw a few in their bin And then toward the end in January when I had that dreadful month, I thought, I know, I will buy casks of wine and I can just flatten the box and put it away. And that was easy. But the downside of that was I drank more because it was a four litre (laughs) cask rather than a one litre bottle. And I only needed a one litre bottle to to get drunk and black out. I I didn't need much alcohol. I learnt in the rooms also that um, it's not the quantity you drink, it's what it does to you. And... Because that was one of my things. I'd I'd say, well, I don't drink as much as them, so therefore I mustn't be mustn't have a problem. But I not a real alcoholic. Yeah, I had to learn that it, it's it's what it does to you, and if you get to blackout, you've got a problem. Mm. So, um, and that that was actually a disaster because one night I had drunk so much of that wine. My son had rung me; he wanted to come and talk to me, and when he got there, I was so drunk. He just shook his head. The next day, he just said to me, "Mum, I am so disappointed in you." I'm like, mate, you know, I can't help it. I'm like, and it, he really, it was, I wasn't there for him. I wasn't there for my kids. Yeah. So Amanda, what about you drinking? What's the, what's the issue with getting rid of the evidence? Oh gosh, that's <laughs> just a massive thing that I've been doing since I was 18. Um, and it's all hidden, exactly what Sharon said. Um, you know, maybe one or two bottles would go in the recycle bin. And I'm, I'm really embarrassed to say this, but... I would put the bottles uh, in in a plastic bag in my car, and I would dump them wherever I could. And yeah. that's I'm I'm really embarrassed to say that um, because it's littering and it's it's just wrong. Um, but that's the madness of this disease because I did not want anyone to know. And you do what whatever you have to do to ensure that that happens. And that's what I did. And I also went to cask wine. Um, because, yeah, you can fold the, the um, cartons up, cartons up yeah. and put that in a plastic bag and then another plastic bag and then another plastic bag so you can't see what's in the plastic bag and then you can put that in the bin. Like, yeah. it, it's just, it's hard work. <laughs> it really is it hard is. work. Right. Uh, now, we'll go back to growing up. And uh, to me, a lot, of, a lot of the problems we have come from growing up that it's our inability to cope with life uh, often. Um, so what was life like growing up for you, Amanda? Um, yeah, look, my childhood I don't look back on too fondly. Um, from an early age, uh, my so my father uh, was a very big personality in, in the AFL industry. Um, he played for and was um, very very dedicated to um, a particular football club in Melbourne. And um, so my uh, mother married my father and they had my older sister. 
uh, it was my dad's second marriage and uh, then I came along and my dad said, have an abortion, otherwise I'll leave. And, you know, this is information that I knew from quite a young age. And, you know, my mum, obviously everyone makes mistakes in parenting. Um, that was a bit of a mistake. Yeah. Um, uh, but, yeah, I, I grew up without my father being around and knowing that, um, you know, his love for this AFL football team was so much – he didn't love me. He didn't care about me. Um, he didn't care about my sister. And so I grew up in a family where my dad didn't care about me um, and my sister obviously inherited his sporting abilities and um, she was very, very successful um, in in sport as well. And so she got all the accolades, all the attention growing up. Um, my grandfather uh, just loved her. You know, his house would be filled with photographs of her and, and her sporting achievements and, you know, there'd be nothing of me. So, um, and I felt like my mum favoured my sister because she got all the attention and the only love that I felt growing up was from my nana and um, my nana passed away when I was 13 so growing up, I was taught by the two men in, in a young child's life um, that I was unlovable and that I was not good enough. Mm. And, um, you know, as a child, you don't understand. And I, I just naturally thought it was me. I'm, I am unlovable. And, yeah, growing up with that, you know, my, my self-esteem was at zero. No. Um, so, yeah, that's sort of how my childhood went and yeah growing up without a dad you know you're different to all the other kids in school and um yeah it just it I, I never sort of felt like I fit in anywhere um I didn't fit in with my family my family were all sporting I was a girly girl I liked playing with Barbies um I thought I was adopted for a long time um I wished I was adopted for a long time. Um, but, yeah, just, you know, like you hear in the rooms all the time, I was just a square peg, round hole. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Um, and that's how I have felt since I can remember feeling. Yeah. Okay. Um, how about you, Sharon? What was your family life like? Um, I come from a loving family. Um, my mum and dad um, drank socially. It was a party thing. Um, uh, they did everything for us, probably too much. Um, I think my mum was very protective, so I was the youngest with two older brothers. Um, I was probably wrapped in cotton wool and um, protected, so nothing bad ever happened to me. But I grew up feeling like I wasn't trusted um, rather than yeah. <clears throat> feeling protected. But once i become a mother, I realised that... My mum was just protecting me. But at the time, it's like you believe these things that she didn't realise I was feeling like I wasn't trusted, surely, but I felt like I wasn't trusted. So, yeah, different. I had a lot of fears growing up, irrational fears. I was scared of the dark. I I would hear a noise outside and I'd be obsessing, looking at the blinds, trying to see what the noise was. And I was sure someone's going to break in and murder me or some, uh, something was under my bed. It was like... <sighs> Totally irrational stuff yep. I had from a little kid. I don't know where that came from, but that's all the stuff that was inside me. But my parents were loving. I had in my we had great holidays. We had family parties. It was like so. Yeah, you never know where this stuff's going to come from. No. So was there drinking in your family? Yeah, they drank socially. Um, Dad 
all my dad's family, they we all got together. We had lots of family things. The the men would drink beer. The ladies might have a glass of wine. There was no excessive drinking in the family. Yeah. I'm the only one that dr- <laughs> drank the, excessively once I started. You're the start of the problem. Yeah. yeah. I mean, every now and then they might have, but no, they – and to this day, like my dad might have one stubby and my mum – she doesn't even have a glass of wine these days. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so do you think you felt different from everybody else? I was always different. Yeah. Um, I was always different and I used to like being different. Um, as a teenager, I dressed differently. I was in the clothing trade. I was different. I had more my ears pierced. I was different. And I actually liked being different for some reason. So I was different, but at school I was probably shy. I was worried that people might see that I couldn't spell. I always never felt good enough. So um, I'd never ask questions in school because if I put my hand up and asked a question, people would think I was dumb. You know, yeah. I had to train myself to do that later in life. Yeah. Okay. So when did you first come across alcohol That for you? My first drink I know was when I was 15. We went to um, a an engagement party up the road, which is my eldest brother's friend and my best friend at school's sister. I was 15, got no idea who gave a 15-year-old a drink. I don't remember having the drink. All I remember is um, being on my way home with my brother and feeling tipsy. I remember that clearly, that I felt tipsy and I loved the feeling. It wasn't a blackout. It was a tipsy and it was like, whoa, I like it. Okay, thank you. So how about you, Amanda? When when was your first drink? Uh, so I was 16 when I had my first drink. And um, growing up, um, I was involved in sport as well. I just wasn't good at it. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, I was involved in sport. And when you're involved in sport, well, at least back in my day, um, drinking wasn't cool. Mm. So, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't touch it. Um, but I stopped playing sport when I was 16 and that's when um, I can clearly remember the day also that I had my first drink and it was in a park with uh, people from school and it was Jim Beam and I tasted it and I said, this is disgusting, give me some more. Um, And I remember drinking like four drinks, just bang, bang, bang um, and got that feeling, that buzz. And I remember catching the bus home sitting in the back of the bus just going, this is the most amazing feeling I've ever had in my life. Where have you been? Yeah. Like, um, And for, for me, that is when um, the alcoholism, whether I was born with it or not, I'm not sure, doesn't matter. Um, but that's what triggered the obsession. And from that day onwards, I've been obsessed with alcohol. Yeah. So how much were you drinking in those days? So when I was 16, uh, it, it was just weekend binging. Um, but I would always binge too much. I remember buying a bottle of Maduri when I was 17 and drinking the whole bottle and I didn't get drunk. And that memory stays with me now because it's like, oh, that was $22 and it was a whole bottle (laughs) and I've never touched Maduri since. Um, (laughs) So, but yeah, then when when daily drinking became part of my story, um, I was drinking at least a bottle and a half of wine each night. Wow. Yeah. From the age of 18. Yeah, that's, that's why a lot of my brain cells are dead. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so, Sharon, you started drinking when you were 15. It became a social thing. So how did that progress? Okay, that was my first drink. Yeah. I don't know that I drank again in that year. No idea. I yeah. don't remember. I know um, 
when I was 16, <clears throat> I'd, um, one of my brothers, my, my middle brother died of, of a, a blood disease and, um, and I started hanging around like his friends became my older brothers and they, they looked after me. And so we would, and I was only 16, but I looked older and I'd go into the pub with them and I might have a Scotch and Coke or a couple of Scotch and Cokes and then we'd go out um, dancing or whatever it was mm. we were going to do. And that would be a once a week thing. So I didn't drink on a regular basis um, for probably the first four years or so. Actually, I didn't drink on a regular basis in those early years at all. It was always binge drinking. If I went out to parties, I'd drink yeah. to blackout. Yeah. A lot of people don't really understand binge drinking. Do you want to explain binge drinking? Okay, binge drinking was I would go out on a Saturday night and I would just drink, 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 get blind drunk. Um, that was a binge because then I might not drink for another two weeks. <clears throat> the next yeah. time I went out, I would drink flat out because I once I started drinking, I never had the switch to say, okay, you've had enough, you're at that tipsy level that you really like, stop yeah. now. Yeah. And There's no off switch. No, there's no off switch in me. That's why I think that I was genetically made this way. I have no off switch. So I would drink and then the next thing, I would wake up the next day not remembering what happened the night before, I didn't know that that was called blackout. I just knew I wasn't a good drinker and I didn't remember what happened the night before. But my friends would fill me in and tell me all the embarrassing, humiliating things I ever did. It was, And I, that's, I had big guilt and remorse back then for the ridiculous, embarrassing stuff I did. Okay, right. Thank you. Um, you're listening to The Living Free Show on 3CR on digital radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. My name's Bill, and with me today in the studio are Amanda and Sharon, and they're from Alcoholics Anonymous, and we're talking about being an alcoholic and trying to figure out how to, how to solve the problem while you're drinking, which is not all that easy. So uh, I'll start with you, Sharon. So what's it like when you're drinking, you want to stop, but you don't really know how? And you're causing all sorts of problems in your family and work and personal life. What's the thing that makes you, that galvanizes you to think, I've got to do something about this? I often thought I needed to do something about it because things that did happen in work was um, one day I was an hour late to open the shop up, you know, and it was in a, a shopping centre, you know. Um, kids would ring me and I was, I was, you know, the eldest daughter would say, have you been drinking? Mum would go, I've had a couple, and she'd hang up on me. It's like stuff like that started to happen, and it, and it was affecting everyone. I um I tried to stop lots of times, and I'd stop for a week, and then I'd pick it back up. It's like it was quite desperate. Um, I'd be so down and depressed, I just wouldn't want to wake up some more. I just want to keep sleeping all day so I didn't have to get up and face my reality. But I think that... The drinking, the alcohol made me really depressed and I didn't realise that it was the alcohol that was making me depressed. Um, it was just such a vicious cycle that I, I couldn't think of a way out of it. I didn't know how to get out of it. I didn't know anything about alcoholism at the time. Okay. So drinking from a young age and drinking hard from a young age must have taken a toll on your body, Amanda. So what sort of things were you facing as your drinking progressed? Yeah, um, look, it certainly did. And this is this is the horrific part of my disease, um, that you would think 
would make me stop, but it didn't. Um, so things like alcoholic diarrhea was um, a big part of my story. Uh, it would it got to the point where um, you know I'd be catching a train to work, and sometimes I'd have to get off that train. And I can tell you that uh, there has been the occasion that I've not found a public toilet. Um, and I can tell you it's the most degrading feeling that a person can ever feel. Um, and unfortunately, it still wasn't enough for me to stop. You know, I remember going to a supermarket in the late stages of, of my disease before I got to rehab and looking at the adult nappies. And I'm like, I'm going to have to buy adult nappies. It was, I couldn't stop drinking. And that's, that's just, that is insane. Um, so yeah. And, you know, I'd, because I was doing morning drinking, um, you know, you'd first get up and you'd have that first drink and sometimes your body would just absolutely reject it. And so you'd, you'd throw up and then you'd try again. And that could take half an hour to actually get some down and keep it down. And that's yeah. only when you started to feel a little bit better. Human. Yeah. 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 Um, and that, you know, I can picture myself doing that and it, that is just a horrific way to live life. Um, I, that's hell. It's hell. And, if, you know, people think that that's a choice. Who would choose yeah. to live their life like that? Yeah. Um, you know, it's just, it's not a choice. No. Um, what was I going to say? Um, so, yeah, Sharon? Did you know that that was alcoholic diarrhoea at the time? I had that happen only twice in my drinking that um, I didn't know there was such a thing as alcoholic diarrhoea till I got to the rooms and it's like twice I went to the – I just went and I just like came out like water. I didn't know. I just like, wow, what, what was that all about? I had no idea. Did you know that that's what it was? Well, I, I didn't know the term <clears throat> alcoholic diarrhea, but I certainly knew it was because of my drinking. Okay. Yeah, definitely. Yep. Uh, the other thing that uh, we really get affected by in, in the drinking is the relationships. So, Sharon, how did your drinking affect your relationships? Um, actually, I... My my necessity to get home and drink stopped me going to visit my parents. Um, I would switch my – I learnt to switch my phone off at night so the kids couldn't ring me and um, hear me slurring. So it affected my relationship with them because they couldn't get in touch with me. I I was isolating. So I was actually stopping relationships toward the end because my drinking – I wanted to drink and that was – that was my priority, yeah. Mm. So it, it affected them in in the other ways that I would be drunk or not there for them. I actually was withdrawing and not being there for my family just purely because I was desperate to get home and drink. Right, okay. So how about you, Amanda? Did it affect your relationships? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, when you're a daily drinker from the age of 18 – um, it affected every relationship moving forward. And, you know, I met my ex-husband uh, when I was 16 in high school and um, he drank like I did. And so we stayed together only because we both drank how each other drank and it was okay. And, you know, I remember walking down the aisle marrying him thinking, what are you doing? You do not even like this man. Um so it just affected my decisions. It affected my relationship with my family. 
Um, you know, I would drink to blackout and I would literally become the devil. And when I'm in a blackout, um, I am just a completely different person and I would verbally abuse them. Um, and the thing is, is I have no memory of it, whereas, you know, they do have memory of the things that I said. And when when you get told the next morning or the next day or what have you, what you've done or what you've said, and it's just so not who you are as a person, it is, it's horrific when you hear what you've said to people that you love. Um, and every relationship that I've had with a man has been um, horrible, <laughs> to, to be honest, um, you know, and it's just, and it's all because I've, I've just been so unwell and just made poor decision after poor decision. Um, so yeah, I've, I'm yet to have a a functioning adult relationship. Right. Um, so I can't even tell you what that feels like. But I look forward to it one day, hopefully. Okay. So how about you, Sharon? What's your functioning adult relationships like? <laughs> well, I was just thinking of another thing that I did that affected a relationship. When I was in my 20s and I was going out with a guy, we went away for the weekend and in a blackout, I don't have no idea to this day what I did, but that ended our relationship. So yep. in a blackout, I did something pretty horrendous. But I never found out what it was to this day. So, yeah, maybe, that, maybe that's good. <laughs> oh, I don't know. <laughs> I think it's good. I, some of the things that I've been told, um, particularly something that I did to my mum, you know, I, yeah, you know, I'd, I'd, it, my disease had reached the point where, even though I personally, this is just a personal thing, don't believe in suicide, um, that's where my disease took me to. And, um, I, I tried to end my life and my mum found me um, and then I went into blackout and I um, I attacked my mum. And, you know, to wake up in the morning and be told that you attacked your mother. Who was trying to save you. Who was trying to save me, mm. yeah. Um, it, it doesn't get worse than that. No. But the thing is, is that that still didn't stop me drinking. Mm. That's how powerful this disease is. Mm. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I never understood with my dad was that he would, I believe today, often drink to um, to blackout um, and he would do and say things that I couldn't understand how he could live with himself the next day having done that, but he didn't experience that because of blackout. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, it sort of it helps you understand the, the insidiousness of alcoholism and um, the impact it has on people's lives. Um and we're nearly nearly at the end. Um, I guess w- one of the things that we say sometimes is, what would you do for somebody who is in a similar situation to what you were? What would you say to them about trying to stop drinking? So, Sharon? Well, I have. Um, there's a few different people that I have spoken to, and all I can do is give them my experience, tell them how it's been for me and how it's helped me. I can't advise anyone all I can do is give them my example of how much better my life is now that I'm not drinking and and what I did to get better and how it was so that they can relate to that the only way I can help them is by being an example and um being honest yeah being honest yes yeah so how about you Amanda yeah look I I would love to just tell anyone who can relate to our stories um and who is drinking against their will that 
It is not their fault. They are not a bad person. They have an illness. This is a disease. Um, And if you get into the AA program, you will learn about the disease. Um, You will have people around you who think, feel and act exactly how you have behaved. They completely understand um, and they, again, will love you back to life and you actually feel, well, for myself, it's the first time I've actually felt like I belong. and you're I, worthwhile. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yep. And um, so, yeah, you are not a bad person. You're just a really, really unwell person and you can get better and life gets so much better. Um, it's indescribable, um, yep. you know. You don't have to live that way. There is help for you and there is support for you. Just, um, yeah, get to the rooms. Take it easy. Yep. Okay. Uh, well, if anybody would like to know more about Alcoholics Anonymous, you can phone them on one three hundred two 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 two, or go online at aa.org.au. So that's about all we've got time for today. So I'd like to thank Amanda and Sharon for coming into the 3CR studio and sharing their Alcoholics Anonymous recovery experience with us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for having us. Uh, I hope you'll be able to join us again next week when we'll be talking about recovering from drug addiction and we'll be joined by Amelia and John from Narcotics Anonymous. I understand that Black Noise Radio is not on today, but we have got a show lined up for you. It won't be live. have got a show lined up for you. So thanks very much for listening to the Living Free program today. 